0: Welcome to this week's Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Lenora Walters, and joining me today are Dave Baxter, Deputy Personal Finance Editor at Investors Chronicle, and Charlotte Ransom, Chief Executive Officer of Net Wealth. When choosing funds to invest in, it's important to draw on as many sources of information as possible. There's already a wealth of information available on data such as performance and fees, but this year investors will be able to consult another measure of a fund's worth. Dave, what is this new information?
1: Hi, Leonora. So basically, under um, some FTA rules that have come in, fund providers now have to, every year... Um, produce a value-for-money assessment about their funds. So essentially, they have to argue whether their funds are providing value for money and why, and they have to look at measures such as um, the fees they charge compared with the cost of delivering that service, um, performance versus other funds, and other measures including um, whether funds have achieved economies of scale and whether these are being passed on to investors in the form of low fees.
0: How helpful will this actually be to investors?
1: Hopefully, they should be extremely helpful because you can much more easily now, uh, via these reports, look at how the funds are performing versus the competition and just how they're justifying, for example, the the fees that they charge um, and whether they're doing what they're meant to be doing.
0: Okay. I mean, that sounds helpful. Are there Mm. any um, shortcomings?
1: Definitely some shortcomings. One interesting element of these reports is the FCA hasn't set a template for how you lay out your argument for value for money. So essentially fund managers can argue in many different ways um, whether their fund is delivering that value or not. That means that for you as a private investor, it's harder to compare funds with others. Um, But in fairness, it does make sense in some respects because funds aim to do different things. You have active funds, passive funds, and even within the same uh, fund sectors, you may have very different approaches. Um, I guess what's important to bear in mind is you need to look at these reports and see what the fund is doing versus uh, the reason you picked it in the first place.
0: Okay. Now, these are fairly new, but um, some uh, people have already dipped their toe in the water. So, you know, which fund providers have come out of them?
1: So, we've seen, um, yeah, a few kind of come out so far. Uh, One example is Vanguard. Um, They would probably be quite keen, I imagine, to get involved first because um, they come out quite well so far because a lot of their funds are, are passive, they compare quite well with the competition on fees and also their performance, again, partly because of the passive elements um, has held up very well. But also it's interesting to see that just with a couple of their equity funds, they haven't done well in recent years versus their benchmark. So you, you can start to see where um, fund providers are or aren't kind of standing up. Um, another example is Rathbones, um, who focus on a variety of active funds. Um what's interesting is one of their funds, uh, the Global Alpha Fund has struggled in performance terms versus other funds. Um that is a fund mainly run for one institution and it seems that the uh, sort of scrutiny of how it's doing may now lead to it being wound up
0: okay um so some far reaching uh consequences mm. there I mean are there any other let 's say perhaps unexpected implications that the uh, publications of these value for money reports could have
1: yes yeah, so I think the um greater scrutiny that they're bringing um should result in some to be fair disruption for investors, but positive disruption mainly so You should see um, fees come down in various ways. For example, um, if you're in a more expensive share class, then it's likely that you'll be moved into a cheaper one if one's available. Um, You may also see funds generally cutting their fees, moving away from some fee structures that might be harder to justify, such as performance fees. Um, Also, and this is perhaps a more disruptive element, um, with funds that are struggling in terms of performance, you may see some big changes, so they may change the management teams, but they may also, um, fund providers may be quicker to either merge underperforming funds into other products or simply close the funds because they're not, not doing the performance.
0: Okay. um, Charlotte, um, do you think that the Financial Conduct Authority's new
2: fund value for money assessments will uh, really help investors establish as to whether this is the case? Hi, thanks, Leonora. We think the aim's a good one. I mean, as a reminder, the research by the regulator found that authorised fund managers or AFMs hadn't considered robustly enough the value they offer to investors under the existing rules. And that had led them to believe that it could be resulting in harm for investors through poor value products. However, the criteria do seem deliberately vague to facilitate this and investors may rightly be cynical about how each asset manager can declare a clean bill of health across all their funds, especially when it's in a formal annual report. Overall, though, we welcome the fact that the assessment has been integrated into the SMCR, the Senior Managers and Certification Regime process.
0: Okay, Um, I suppose one issue I have... um If the asset managers themselves write the reports, are they really
2: objective? Yeah, I mean, in our view, it's a difficult task that the FCA has set. How can they be truly objective? Um, We haven't seen any high profile cases yet of any fund who have found themselves to be lacking, which suggests that there may be a lack of objectivity. Um, I think what we've seen in the past is that there can be a tendency to apply the letter of the law rather than the spirit. And what I hope we find this time is that there's slightly better behaviour on the back of the requirement for the value for money um, assessment.
0: What else can investors do themselves to try to ensure that the funds they're thinking of investing in already
2: hold are good value for money? Well, for actively managed funds, it's tricky. Um, We're sceptical about how investors or their advisors can anticipate when a given fund manager will outperform. And even when they have done, the drivers of success can be unclear. So what does value for money actually mean in this context? Our process focuses more on ensuring that each fund targets the particular market exposure we're looking for, and it does so in an efficient, repeatable way. As the growth of passives continues to put overall pressure on charges and fees, as Dave was mentioning, maybe that task of deciphering value for money for active funds will become easier, but we'll want to see the evidence first. In terms of costs and charges specifically, there are often several different types of charges which investors really must try to understand and compare, because this is fundamental to assessing value for money. Asset management is often consumed as part of a bundled offering. So, for example, it sits alongside administration or platform services and costs will vary across providers, but it is possible to get to a consistent evaluation of charges by breaking down all of the different costs. So if we think about direct costs, you have things like the annual management charge, a platform charge, there will be a type of service charge, for example, advice, there might be custody, tax reporting and so on. And then there's also indirect costs like portfolio turnover, dealing spreads, foreign exchange and so on. And it's really important for investors to get to the bottom of those different charges.
0: OK, thank you, Charlotte. Some really helpful suggestions. After years of holding back from UK equities, funds investors appear more confident on this asset. And in December, these types of funds made net sales of £1.3 But some investors who invest directly in UK equities are not so sure because they think there's still a number of risks. Dave, you've been speaking to one of these investors. Uh, who is this and um, why she's still concerned about UK equities?
1: So this is Anna McDonald. She is on the team that runs the Amati UK Smaller Companies Funds. Similarly to uh, some of the investor behaviour that you mentioned, she has become more positive on the kind of domestic facing elements of the uk markets and um, that began before the election when we saw some uh, signs of progress of boris's uh, brexit deal and then after the election that confidence grew um, but it's interesting the way she put it was there's no slam dunk because as we've discussed on this show before um, there's still plenty of uncertainty there's still the cliff edge uh, risk with brexit and this is a you know a long and potentially difficult process
0: OK, so how she positioned the fund to deal with these risks?
1: So she's been increasing her domestic facing exposure. For example, recently she's been adding to some house builders such as Redrow, Granger, MJ Gleeson. Um, but she's still balanced. Uh, when I asked her what her um, balance of uh, domestic and kind of overseas facing companies was, it's an even split, 50-50.
0: She's concerned about those things and mm. um, kind of positioned accordingly. I mean, is she worried about anything else?
1: Yeah, she raised um, a bigger structural trend that's um, probably of concern to many equity managers, which is uh, the de equitization of the, uh, the stock market. Um, so the fact that uh, many companies, particularly sort of high growth tech names, uh, now can quite easily get uh, funding privately. That means companies are less likely to list on the market. And she said that last year, you know, you had a really low level of um kind of IPOs in the UK. Um so that's just it makes it harder for her to find opportunities.
0: Okay. I mean is this stopping her from adding new investments to to UK Smaller Companies Fund?
1: It's making her life harder, but there are still some uh, interesting investments that they're finding. Um one that she mentioned was uh, Pebble Group. They focus on areas like promotional merchandise, um, for example, branded umbrellas, that kind of thing. Um, They IPO'd in early December. Um, What's interesting is that came um, before the election when markets and investors were still, you know, a bit sort of uncertain. And that allowed uh, the funds team and some other investors to uh, basically demand a better price.
0: OK, thank you, Dave. And read this full interview with Anna MacDonald, co-manager of TBMATI UK Smaller Companies Funds, in this week's Investors Chronicle. Charlotte, we've just been talking about instances of investor caution for reasons such as Brexit. How much has this deterred investors from putting their money into markets?
2: Yeah, it's interesting. The uncertainty surrounding Brexit has hung over investors for the past few years and has really been a major factor. Um, We conducted some research at the end of 2019 and found that more than two-fifths or 41% of prospective investors were deterred from putting cash to work, with 41% of them citing Brexit as a deterrent. And then wider political uncertainty, which is clearly linked to Brexit, was quoted in 38% of cases.
0: Okay. Now, It may seem wise to try to avoid certain risks by not investing. But are there any downsides to doing this? I mean, you know, is there a cost to
2: caution? Yeah, investors need to know that there'll always be risks to investing. And there are times when the economic and political backdrop can be quite off-putting for prospective investors. And this is often when tensions are closest to home and sensitivities are therefore the most acute, as we found during the Brexit discussions. The problem with this is that by being too cautious, investors run the risk of missing out on investment returns that are being generated more broadly, potentially regardless of any uncertainty nearer to home. So last year, for example, which had its fair share of uncertainty, a somewhat cautious portfolio with a 40-60 split between equities and bonds returned 8.8%, which on a pot, for example, of £250,000 would have meant a return of £22,000. A more moderate portfolio with 60% in global equities would have returned 12.4%, which on the same 250,000 pot would have generated a return of £310,000. So there's a real cost to being too cautious and staying in cash for too long.
0: OK. I mean, what can investors do to avoid missing out on returns
2: while still trying to mitigate risks? We really believe the best way to avoid missing out on returns is to be invested rather than sitting on the sidelines. Ensuring you have a balanced and well-diversified portfolio will minimise exposure to individual events and enable you to benefit from the returns that long-term investment can offer. Related to this, it's worth remembering that timing the market is close to impossible, especially on a consistent basis. So too many people miss out on returns since they're either waiting for pullbacks that don't happen or they're too slow to react when they do happen. Rather than trying to time the market, we advocate time in the market. Okay,
0: and um, are there any strategies or investment techniques that could help investors to manage uncertainty in choppy markets while staying invested and
2: not timing the markets? Yes, well firstly, it's really important to have a decent time frame to weather choppy markets in the short term. Um, Also, having some exposure to fixed income is helpful. As we saw last year, it's an asset class that can continue to perform despite the low level of yields in a volatile market backdrop. And we also like to have protection from currencies that tend to do well in falling markets, such as the yen and the dollar.
0: Okay. Now, are there any particular areas at the moment that maybe seem really unappealing to invest in, but for investors with the
2: right risk profile and time horizon – could be worth having exposure to. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm going to mention fixed income again. So acknowledging the low, in fact, negative levels of real yields available to investors, you can't rely on high quality fixed income assets to produce meaningful returns over the long term. But we really believe they have a role to play in portfolio construction. And owning fixed income assets has been a significant factor in delivering strong performance for us.
0: Okay, Now, we've just been talking about UK equities and the problems they face. I mean, what kind of position
2: should investors take on them? Um, Well, investors should be aware of the macro influences on UK equities, just like any other asset. Um, At the end of last year, we saw a sharp period of positive performance relating to the perception that the macro risks had lifted. However, now we can see that the sectoral makeup of the mega cap market has had a headwind this year with oil prices under pressure. And this means that the valuation case for owning them has changed. Um, We still think it does make sense to hold domestic UK exposure. And we focused more of that than usual in the FTSE 250, so the mid cap part of the market as part of our UK exposure in diversified portfolios for investors willing to take some equity risk.
0: Okay, and um, just um, elaborating a bit on the type of investors that it might be suitable for. It
2: should is it for high risk, low risk, medium risk? What what?
0: Specific well, as we types? said before, you can yes yeah.
2: um, equities mm. up with fixed income. Mm. So um, as long as there is some tolerance for equity types of risk uh, in order to earn their returns, then we think that it can be relevant for a pretty broad class of investors.
0: Okay, now another area that perhaps doesn't seem very attractive at the moment might be Asian equities, in particular China equities, because of the coronavirus outbreak. Um, what should investors do about
2: them? Well, our chief economic strategist, Jared Lyons, um, has written a detailed piece on the coronavirus, and it's available on the Netwealth site. We just don't know what the impact of the virus will be yet, so. Don't panic, but avoid complacency is the main message. Um, There are clear downside risks to economic growth for China and its trading partners. But I think what markets struggle to price really is the tail risk of this becoming a pandemic. And the response from the authorities will be very important. So in China, that means how they include this additional challenge into their broader policy framework. And a significant agenda was outlined by the Economic Work Conference in December, And for the rest of the world, this means looser monetary policy underpinning bond prices.
0: OK. Now, are there any instances
2: when holding back from investing is justified? Absolutely. Um, We would never suggest investing when the time frame is a short one what's your definition of a short one yeah well so a common example for for us Mm. is when clients have sold a property Mm. they're suddenly holding a significant amount in cash which may be the case of several months or even a year or two and if that money's designated to go back into the property market in a relatively short time frame we would always advocate holding back from investing since the time horizon just doesn't allow for the smoothing out of returns and could potentially lead to a loss of capital
0: Okay. Now, are there any type of assets that you think investors would be justified in avoiding at the moment, even if they don't uh, hold back from putting their money into other areas?
2: Yeah, we would avoid income-oriented strategies. So, income has been very popular, but we feel focusing Too much on the income you receive from investments really narrows the universe of attractive assets, and it also can have unintended consequences for the type of exposures held across portfolios. So, for example, there's likely to be increased correlation because the underlying assets will have similar drivers. And secondly, there's more likely to be concentration risk if you focus on the large, high-yielding stocks in the market. What we much prefer is taking a total return approach where you can build a better balanced portfolio and then design cash flow and income strategies that are specific to your individual needs.
0: Thank you, Charlotte. Some really helpful tips and strategies. That brings us to the end of today's show. But see Investors Chronicle or the website at www.investorschronicle.co.uk for more on how to assess funds. UK equities, and the effects of the coronavirus on investments. Thank you for listening and have a good weekend. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands.